and welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation podcasts. In this episode, we will be exploring technology, democratizing access to digital and development skills, and creating powerful communities for global impact. I'm delighted to welcome John Gottfried, co-founder of Major League Hacking. John, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Susie. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, John, you're um, a hacker. (laughs) and an entrepreneur, and you like helping people build community and learn about technology generally, two of the most important skills for me for today's world, but also for tomorrow's world, today, if you like. But I understand that you started off as like a hobbyist programmer when you were a kid building websites and games and playing around with different technologies. And I love the robot behind you before the show. I was saying I wouldn't know how to use it, but it looks very cool. (laughs) But you took that to a different place, and you're the co-founder of Major League Hacking. Can I call it MLH? Of course, yeah. Otherwise, it's a little bit of a mouthful. So you are the co-founder of MLH. And in fact, you and your co-founder, Mike Swift, were awarded the Forbes 30 Under 30 in 2017 for MLH. And before that, you were National Director of the Startup Burst and formerly a developer evangelist. We'll come back to that and to find out what developer evangelist means and what you do. But for me, these stories all tie together when we look at what you're doing in Major League Hacking, or MLH, as I now call it. So can we start there? Can you tell us about the birth, if you like, and the growth of the MLH movement? Yeah, I I mean, all of the things that you mentioned are really tied together. I I actually have sort of a a non-traditional start in tech. I I, I studied Mm. history. I love that. My (laughs) original intention was to be a high school history teacher. So obviously, long ways away from there now. But Mm. I you know, was one of those people that loved tinkering with technology. And, you know, I'm of what I would say is like the final generation that didn't grow up with ubiquitous technology everywhere, right? Like when I was a kid, we had, you know, floppy disks and dial up at a certain point, but it wasn't something that was, you know, part of every aspect Mm. of your life. And to do anything remotely interesting you had to build some kind of technical competency, right? Because mm. computers weren't super easy to use. Mm. So I got interested in it just through that necessity, right? Like mm. they were there. I wanted to do things. I had to learn to do things. But, you know, I never really considered the tech industry as mm. a career, oddly enough. Why not? I think the media around it was uh-huh. was less developed. Okay. And honestly, like I had a picture in my mind. I I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Office Space, but I kind of thought that programmers like sat in cubicles and hated their lives and was like (laughs) this really dry career, which it's not. But that was my perception Mm. of it. So I really wanted to work with people. And that's why I wanted to go become a teacher. What ended up happening is a good friend of mine dragged me to all of these sort of like nascent tech events in New York City where I live. and. By going to those events, it sort of like changed my entire worldview because you showed up and people were spending like nights and weekends just building cool stuff with technology. Mm. And they had so much like to bring that wasn't just tech. Like a lot of these events were musicians or artists or scientists all coming together to like build cool things that inspired them. Mm. Me, I was like, oh, like, this is where I want to be. Like, these are the people I want to be around. You know, it's not just like stodgy office, right? It's this really creative, passionate group of people. And that was what drew me into the tech industry. You know, when we eventually started MLH, 
obviously a lot happened in between Mm. there, but it was a direct extension of that feeling. Like Mm. we wanted to create that experience for other people, especially, you know, people Mm. who are early in their careers, Mm. because it was such a powerful impact on myself and and my co-founder Swift's Mm. uh, lives. Mm. I mean, there's quite a bit to unpack there, but let me, so there's a couple of subjects, but I love the fact that it's forcing us this conversation already, but the whole, what MLH does is forcing us to review our biases, like, step out of our boxes and the boxes we put people in you know like you wanted to be a history teacher you now work yeah. in tech and you know there is and I think that's part of the, the technology evolution is that there, there are you know like skills are moving so quickly that there's no necessary not necessarily a CV that you're looking for and you have to have done this and done that and done that and I think that's where the magic happens which is what you're explaining ironically on the people side and not necessarily yeah. on the tech side so if I talk about democratizing access because yep. this whole change of perspective change of lens on the developer role and skill set for me is also democratizing access because you're taking away what I call false barriers that are systemic to whether you can or cannot come and work in tech, irrespective of gender, because we know that there are some biases around the gender. So, you know, is that what a developer evangelist is? Because I've seen, you know, that you were a developer evangelist at Twilio and I've heard the term, but in my, so here's my bias. In my mind, I'm linking it to ambassadoring this democratization of access to learning development skills that that was how i viewed it i mean i mean okay. the role has evolved a lot like i was mm-hmm. a developer evangelist at this point you know 10 plus years ago mm-hmm. so in that amount of time that role has changed quite a bit but when i was doing it the vast majority of my time was spent either thinking about how to help developers be more successful or directly helping them in either a one-to-one or one-to-many way, you know, to to learn and be more Mm. successful. And that took a lot of different forms, right? It was, you know, going to schools and giving a workshop for students. Mm. It was giving a conference talk uh, on stage for hundreds of people. It was writing a tutorial or a blog post or making a video. You know, I I really did see it as an educational role. And, you know, through that work, you know, I actually got to know Swift, my co-founder, because I was a developer evangelist at Twilio. He was a developer evangelist at another company called SendGrid, which ironically has now been acquired by Twilio, but at the time they were totally separate. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we just did a lot of this community work together. And eventually we sort of came to this conclusion that like, hey, like we wanted to do something, you know, meaningful Mm -hmm. together as a team. Mm -hmm but also that students and, and our work with school groups was probably our favorite part of our jobs. And, you know, that led very organically and directly into creating MLH. But like all of the work was focused on education, e- even if it wasn't as, I don't know, like specific as MLH is now. Mm-hmm. And you have a podcast yourself, don't you, which focuses yep. on uh, education of, around developer skills and, and the developer tech world, let's put it that way. Yeah. So you said the role has changed. So you've just described to me what the role looked and felt like when you first started. What's the shift before we go into what's the biggest barrier to developer skill? I think developer evangelism as a field has matured a lot. Mm. That means a lot of different things. There's a lot more structure around it now, you know, a lot more expectations. Is that a good Uh, thing, John? I think it's probably a good thing for justifying the existence of that role within a okay. corporation. Yeah. I do think you you can run the risk of losing some of the, I don't know, like 
creative open-endedness that existed yeah. at, at a certain time. But, you know, it's sort of specialized now. Like, you can be the developer evangelist where like 90% of your job is creating content. You okay. can be, you know, a developer evangelist or related titles like developer advocate, developer marketing, developer relations. There's a lot of different mm. names for it. And each of them have certain implications and every company is starting to think about it differently and offer specializations within it. Mm. So I think that's that's kind of a cool evolution of the role. But like, you know, when I did it, it was like a very small, scrappy thing where we were kind of just figuring it out as we go. And, you know, a lot of really smart people at Twilio evolved it to a mm. much more like mature point after I left. But when I was doing it, it was like <laughs> the Wild West a little bit. Mm. But you're still evangelizing, aren't you? But would you still call yourself a developer evangelist or tell me about your personal shift? How is your role? Because I see you evangelizing in lots of different areas, lots of which we share, hence yeah. the podcast around, you know, the human collaboration and building powerful, impactful communities and things like that. So where do you see your evangelist role today? Yeah, I, I certainly still consider that one of my, you know, core responsibilities. Mm. It's not my title because it's not my only focus mm. anymore, right? Mm. Like when you're building a, a organization and a company, you know, you have to think a little bit more broadly than yeah. that, but like yeah. still maybe the most important part of what we do on a day-to-day basis. It's a little bit different. Like most developer evangelists are, are focused on a particular product. Like nice. I was evangelizing Twilio, you know, Google might have evangelists. Every company has this mm. for their developer platforms. Now at MLH, like we're kind of developer evangelists just for developer skills generally. Yes. Uh, and it's okay. it's more product agnostic. Mm. Mm-hmm. So do I have to be a developer to get involved in MLH? No, not at all. In saying that, like, a lot of the folks who participate in our programs have never written a line of code in their life. The thing that is sort of like unifying about all of them is that many of them want to learn that. Mm-hmm. So okay. our programs really exist to take all of this foundational knowledge that you've developed in you know, university or a boot camp or mm. self-driven learning mm. and bridge the gap from that to mm. actual real world skills that you need to, to get a job or start a company or whatever else you want to do with your career. Mm. The starting point that people come in at is really varied. Like if you go to one of our events, you could see someone who is 18 years old and has never seen a lot of code in their life. And they're just excited to learn. And you could see someone who's like, you know, had internships at Microsoft mm. and Google and is super experienced building really complex stuff. And so you get a lot of that variety. And, you know, you also get a lot of mentorship and sort of like peer support from the, mm. the range of skills that you see. Mm. It's brilliant because a lot of it is coming from a lot of the democratization of access is coming from the eclectic skill sets that you have and the eclectic yeah. profiles that you have. So, yeah. but But I mean, what you do is Massively exciting for me. It moves quite quickly. Uh, it's it's always evolving because it's community based. How do you measure that? So someone said, you know, tell me how you measure the success of MLH. How do you do that? Yeah. So for us, and I'll explain a little bit about like what our programs actually mm. are. But at the core of it, we are what's called a public benefit corp or a B corp. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a new model of mission driven corporations. Mm. So it's not a nonprofit. 
and it's not a traditional corporation. It's somewhere in between. And what that means is like our actual corporate bylaws and our board of directors, you know, are all aligned around this mission, which for us is to empower hackers. It's very simple, very straightforward, very open-ended. The way that we measure that impact Mm -hmm. is looking at, you know, both like the quantitative and qualitative elements of our community. Mm -hmm. So how many people are we serving in a given year? What are their experiences like? Mm. You know, do they say they are getting value out of this and having this life-changing experience Mm. that we're trying to create? And so you kind of look at all of that holistically to come up with an idea of like how successful we are. It's also really important to us to build a sustainable business, right? Like, you know, one of the risks with nonprofits is they can be very like leading based on you know, the whims of their donors. And that's a risk, right? Mm. And when you're trying to build something that could exist for 100 years, you know, we we like to think that there are still mission-oriented but more financially sustainable ways to build that. And so, you know, that's a big part of how we think about the world as well. To explain a little bit around, like, what we actually do, it's a combination of different educational programs. So what we're best known for are these on-campus hackathons. Mm. Um, A hackathon is a weekend-long invention marathon. So you come in, you come up with an idea. Could be anything. Could be a Mm. robot, could be a website, could be a mobile app, could be a self-driving car. And you spend roughly a weekend, you know, 24 to 36 hours, building a working version of that Mm. idea. And then Mm. you can demo it to judges and win prizes and have fun. So that's the core of what we do is those hackathons. There's maybe 300 of them a year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We also do virtual, what we call like hacker festivals, which are a little bit longer running. It's one week every month called Global Hack Week. You can attend workshops and things like that. And then we run a 12-week immersive fellowship program, which is designed to be a little bit more like advanced uh, skills Mm. development for students. And that could be focused on you know, open source software or Linux system skills mm. or or whatever else. Mm. So it's really upskilling on the digital side as well in terms of digital skills. But when you when I when someone says hackathon to me and all the hackathons I've ever been to as yeah. a non-technical layperson, let's put it that, I always think about design thinking, design sprinting. Yeah. Is it so are you using a specific methodology that you sort of catered for your need or are you just taking the design thinking cognitive processes or can you tell me a bit about what you put in the hackathons so hackathons in our world are almost like a little bit of like organized chaos and and what i mean by that (laughs) i like that (laughs) yeah like we're not super prescriptive about Mm -hmm. how you do what you do Mm -hmm. so you come into an event maybe it's a friday night and you have like an inkling of an idea the first step might just be like find other people at the event that are interested in working on that idea with you. Okay. Once you have that, once you have your team, you kind of just figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds like super open-ended, but it's like, okay, maybe we want to build a app that helps. I mean, one I've seen before is like, okay, like it helps restaurants list food that food banks can collect mm-hmm. at the end of the night. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. What do you need to do to build that? We need maybe a a database. Maybe Mm -hmm. we need a website. Maybe we need a mobile app. And so you start kind of scoping out all of these components. But different people do that in different ways. You know, I have seen people where they have a really specific, well-thought-out design process. Mm -hmm. I've seen other people where they just, like, 
jump into writing code immediately and figure it out as they go. And either approach could be successful because like the definition of success varies quite a bit from person to person. Yeah. I, I almost like like to compare it to like running a marathon. Yeah. You know, like most people are not running a marathon to win the marathon. No. Right. They're running it to finish or beat their own personal best mm. or something like that. Mm. Hackathons are super similar. You know, like for one person, maybe it's the first app they've ever written and that's their accomplishment. For another person, maybe they really want to win the grand prize. Mm. Uh, and you see that whole spectrum of, of you know, successful outcomes. Yeah, which is great because basically you can use your own definition of success and you can use your own learning styles. Because I'm hearing very different, you know, people, yeah. some people learn by doing, some people want to a reflectors, some people. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm also hearing self-organized teams, if I put corporate language on it, you know, yes. what we're talking about in terms of sort of working across ecosystems and things like that. Which brings me to a question I had around community, uh, John. What's your view on the future of community and the skills it takes to build those communities? Because it's quite easy to build a community, but it's not easy to make it powerful and impactful. Yeah. I think that communities are primarily like a a social construct Mm. and that the most successful communities I've seen are actually fairly intimate. Mm. And so what I mean by that is small groups of people that can spend the time to get to know each other quite well and form like social and professional connections Mm. that last beyond whatever like activity they're doing. Mm. Those types of like localized or like small communities can bubble up into a larger community. So like for us, Mm. you know, we work with 150,000 students a year. The vast majority of those students are not aware of the other students in that mass, yes. but they might be aware of the 50 or 100 people in their school or in their mm. city, mm. Uh, and they might be really close with them. Mm. And that's what we strive to create. And so all of those together can accomplish really big things. But I think it's really important that communities continue to exist in person. I actually think that, that you know, despite everything we've experienced over the past couple mm. of years, or maybe because of it, yeah. That's really important. Mm-hmm. And I also think that they they do require a level of like trust and, you know, personal connection to mm-hmm. the other members of the community. And that, that's really difficult to create the bigger you get. It is. And it's also quite difficult to upskill people on that, isn't it? Because I was yeah. thinking, you know, I wonder how MLH goes about ensuring that collaboration remains human with all the skills that that requires, as well as, you know, the tech part, because digital enables quite a lot of that via platforms and things like that. But we're back to the sort of messy human part of, you've got to have the skills that haven't you to, like you said, be social, create connections, listen to others' ideas, you know, let the collective intelligence work um, in, or the self-organized team or whatever, and let it form. So do you actually explicitly address that or train on that? We do. So. The way our model works is it's almost like a distributed network of communities. So we have like full-time staff whose entire job is training and coaching local community organizers at different schools. Okay. Almost all of these communities are student-led. So it's like a club on campus or or something like that. I think, you know, some schools call them societies, some call them clubs, you know, whatever else. Mm. But you know. You have to have like that person or set of people on the ground who Mm. are like intrinsically motivated to build their local community. And we can provide them with 
best practices and guidance and and connections to other groups mm-hmm. and all of these things that help them not have to start from scratch. Yeah, but yeah. you do have to have the like local leadership and passion. Once you get beyond that, you know, there's a lot of interesting things you can do to connect all of these different communities together. Like one of the ways that we've, you know, been doing it, at least for the last couple of years, is we have a massive Discord server, you know, incredibly popular service. Mm-hmm. And we've set it up in such a way where like you can have spaces to interact with everyone from around the world. You can also have spaces to interact with just your local, you know, friends. Right. And those can coexist in the same like application, but you kind of have to have both to, to be successful here. I also think that like communities mean different things to different people. Like yeah. some groups that we see are getting together explicitly to learn something. Like they get together and they're like, we are the mobile app development club. Yeah. And we want to get together and talk about mobile app development. Other groups are more of a social club and the learning is like a byproduct of that. Yeah. Sometimes I say that like hackathons are are kind of like an educational bait and switch in, in like the nicest <laughs> way where mm. like you're not, most people are not going to specifically learn a skill, right? Mm. They're going because it's a fun social environment and their friend asked them to tag along and there's free food, you know, like, like those are the, the hooks. Mm. Mm. Learning is a byproduct of the the you know structure of the event where you have to build some idea. Mm. It's in the sharing essentially, isn't it? Whether it's it sharing of technical product knowledge or whether it's sharing of experience. If I come back to um, what inspires these sort of community leaders locally, what if yeah. you had to describe for me, John, the mindset that's necessary to develop these ecosystems, but also, and I'm making the parallel with actually technical developing in open source because it's also yeah. a mindset isn't it what would you be looking for or how would you describe that mindset to people so i think you have to be very invested in mm. the success of other people and this comes back to that idea of developer evangelism yeah like my job and the job of most you know developer evangelists out there is not necessarily to produce like a masterwork on their own. Mm. It's actually to help other people accomplish whatever their goals are. Mm. And I think the best community leaders have the same mindset where they see themselves as an enabler for their peers mm. and, you know, really lean into this concept of like servant leadership, right? Mm. Like, yeah. like they are the ones cleaning up the trash at the end of the night and they are the ones who are, you know, getting everyone excited about showing up in the morning And that can feel really good, right? Like that's a really personally Mm. fulfilling thing to do. But you also have to have like an incredible amount of empathy and, you know, selflessness and Mm. just like excitement for helping other people. But it can lead to really big things, right? Mm. Like I, I, I do think that many of these communities, like, and a lot of the work that we do at MLH, you know, literally like changes people's lives, you know, it can change the whole trajectory of their life. It can change how they think about themselves, what opportunities they have access to. Mm. And that starts in a really small way of just like, hey, there's free pizza, you know, come to this meetup. Yes, starting small and building on iterative successes, isn't it? But I mean, so if I come back to how good that feels and, and why we do that and the impact of doing that, what do you see as the biggest barriers today, John, for people trying to find something like MLH or trying to find access to those type of skills? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the hardest things when you're starting out is knowing what the actual learning path is like. Yeah. Especially when you're learning to code, like learning to code this really weird combination of like highly technical, almost like mathematical skills Mm. and like creativity and creative output. And so a lot of people get stuck on the early stages where they're not actually able to produce anything that exciting yet, Mm -hmm. right? Like they're learning fundamentals and that can be really dry and it can take many months to to get to a point where you can turn those fundamentals into something that you're really excited about. Mm -hmm. And so I think like for technical skills, like that's a big barrier is like knowing that like those are the hurdles, those are the milestones and seeing other people go through a similar process. Yeah. I think that for different like groups of people though, the the struggles are very different, right? Like mm-hmm. we are a very global organization. Not everyone in our network has the same level of internet access, for yeah. example. Yeah. You know, if you are from a historically underrepresented group in tech, you might not like have access to all the same mentorship and educational opportunities and mm. people to to compare yourself to and aspire to mm. right and that can present its own barriers mm. you know so there's it's a really complex issue and i do think that like community is the solution you know yeah. like one of the things we often find is even one positive experience in, in this like whether it's going to a hackathon or a meetup or a conference mm. like having that one positive mm. like mm initial experience can become, you know, the hook that gets you permanently involved in something, right? Like Mm. you go, you build a connection with someone, you're inspired, you feel good about it, and you leave wanting to do it again. And that's really how like our network and and our community grew. Like we did basically no marketing for, Mm. for many, many years. And it was all word of mouth. Someone goes to an event, they have an incredible experience. They go back to their school. They're like, hey, I want to create this here too. And so I do think that you have this like viral spread when you create positive experiences and memories for people. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's it's incredibly impressive to hear that it's organic. It was organic for so many years because that that is just passion and human social connection, isn't it? Yeah. So we're sat in 2023. Yeah. If I take you to 2030, what's your vision, John, for the industry and, and what it will look like? One of the big things that we're thinking about, especially right now when there's all this like Mm. volatility in the tech industry, Mm. is how do we better connect people with career opportunities? It's a really specific thing, but it's also incredibly difficult. The way that people are hired when they're early in their career is really bizarre. You look at like, where did they go to school? Where did they have an internship? You know, like what, mm. uh, what was their GPA? What was their mm. coursework? None of that is reflective of how talented or or how much potential you have as a technical person. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. And so like one of the things that we're thinking about and like certainly I'd love to, to accomplish this by 2030, but we want to be able to give our students, right, in our community a way to showcase their skills and interests and differentiate themselves in a way that opens up more career opportunities mm. that actually reflects what they're good at and excited to learn and can accomplish down the road mm. 
And it's really hard to do that because it yeah. requires a mindset shift. Like mm-hmm. you basically have to change how companies hire. But I do think that like a lot of the foundational elements are there. Mm-hmm. Like even knowing, you know, what does this person work on in their free time? Mm-hmm. Are they working on really artistic stuff? Are they, you know, a community leader? Like mm-hmm. all of those things I think should factor in to your process of getting a job, mm-hmm. you know, like that is probably more important than your GPA in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. and especially for folks who are not studying computer science or have non-traditional mm-hmm. paths, like what they are excited about and what they spend their time doing is a really good indicator of mm-hmm. success. And and do you work with the relevant systems, i.e. either in um, educational institutions or in corporations as well, you know, corporate world around being a talent evangelist, essentially. So take exactly what you said, you know, let's rethink the definition of talent yeah. and what that profile and journey looks like. Do you do you also look at the systemic part as MLH or? Yes and no, right? Okay. Like we exist as this interesting like layer on top of other educational mm. and corporate entities. We have boot camps that we work with. We have universities. We have community colleges. We have independent groups that have no association with anyone. And so there is value of working with universities for sure, but a lot of their, a lot of the way that they function and their incentives of how to grow a university aren't necessarily as related to like what we do, which is really focused on like technical skill development. Yeah. And so there's a disconnect there. Right. And I think Mm -hmm. that having another layer that's extracurricular makes a lot of sense on the corporate side. You have to work with HR teams at a certain point. And we already see like there are early companies that are on the bleeding edge where they say we are going to think radically differently about talent, right? Mm. And how we identify and hire people. Mm. And I, I think those companies are probably attracting and and you know hiring like disproportionately talented people right. to what other folks would perceive them to have. Uh, mm. Right. Like they're, these are not the Googles and the Amazons of the world. And certainly a lot of really smart, talented people work there. But there are a lot of these folks flying under the radar that just like get these super creative, interesting, passionate people working there because they're taking a more novel mm. approach to, to mm. bringing them in the door. And I think it's the evolution, isn't it? Because I read about, you know, the Google, when, if I go back 10 years, the smart creatives, which yeah. which made the first step of disrupting the talent management process, as we know, as we know yep. today, the definition of talent and profiles and things like that. So I see it as a sort of shift, um, as skills shift, but skills are shifting more and more quickly. Hence my question of, yeah. you know, how do we, and I'm going to put myself in there, start, you know, because that's the work I do as well, just not in, in a hackathon, but how do we start creating a community of people that can do this evangelist work of, you know, talent isn't necessarily a certain profile or a certain CV or a certain school. I think that you need to give people like a platform Mm. to showcase and and not, I don't mean a software platform. I just mean a platform generally Mm. to showcase their interests and skills. And you need to give them the like time and space Mm. and lack of risk to experiment. You know, one of the the problems with a lot of computer science education is that it is overly reliant on individual work yeah. and following very specific learning projects. Mm. And 
that's just not reflective of how the actual industry works, right? Like mm -hmm. most work in the industry is collaborative. Most yeah. work in the industry is not specific. It's actually very abstract and open-ended. And I think you need to create those types of environments for people to like practice that part mm. of their skills. Mm. The analogy I really like is imagine if you're like studying to be a painter, right? And all you ever do is paint from paint by numbers, yeah. you know, like, yeah. like all you yeah. do is practice the strokes and like, that's great. Mm. You build your foundational skills, mm. but like you need time to just like mess around and see what you get. And like, mm you know, throw paint at a wall and splatters, right? And like, that's what a lot of really talented mm. technical people do too. And I think that like, hackathons are one method of providing that dedicated time and space. Mm. There are others, you know, like open source communities are a really good enabler of, of mm. that kind of work because there often isn't a roadmap, you know? It's often no. just like people sort of like organically collaborating together to accomplish something. You know, and sometimes that something is really well-defined. Sometimes no one has any idea what it is and they're just mm. like seeing what sticks to the wall. Mm. I do think that the fact that there's more and more of these opportunities and platforms and space, let's call it space, a virtual or, or physical, these spaces yeah. to experiment and do that. Do you think that's widening the gap with the current corporate organizations and ways of working? Or do you think that it's helping us bridge that gap? I think it's helping to bridge the gap. Mm. I think that organizations would have to catch up at some point to how how yeah. that stuff is happening. But like, I think in terms of like individual opportunity and access to these these mm. things, I think it's uh, closing the gap mm. because community oriented approaches and like community oriented learning is sort of by design very open and welcoming, right? Like the mm. definition of a community is that like it is a place for people to gather and come together. Yeah. And to do that successfully, you have to be inclusive. You have to be welcoming. You have to be open to, to other perspectives and skills mm. and backgrounds. And I think that that is, is making a huge difference. Like mm. even when we look at our community, which is highly technical, only about 50% of them are studying computer science as their major. You know, the other 50% oh. are a mix of everything. Like maybe they're liberal arts students like I mm. was. You know, maybe they're biologists who mm. want to use software to, I don't know, like make better like gene therapy. Like, I, I don't know what biologists do, but mm. um, <laughs> technology and software is just a a, a tool. You know, it's mm. a means to an end, but it's a means to an end that can have incredible like impact and reach mm. with relatively little effort. Mm. And if I go back to, you know, you studying history and thinking that you might want to become a history teacher and then where you are now with the MLH, what's the most transformative thing you've ever done, John? What really <laughs> taught you that the most and you thought, oh, this is a, a big light bulb or a big shift or a big life change? Or... So, I mean, there have been a lot of bizarre things I've done, but. <laughs> Well, one of the things that like really sticks out and like I, I have incredibly fond memories of was I did this event. What year was this? 2011 or 2012 called Startup Bus. And it was literally a cross-country bus trip from New York to Austin, Texas. You got on the bus with about 30 strangers and you had to build both the business side of a startup and also a working functional prototype of your product in whatever it was like a three-day bus ride 
that sounds kind of crazy. And it was, but it was one of those like really transformational experiences because I was a college student when I did it. And I had been sort of like dragged along by a friend. They invited me to this like weird thing that sounded fun. And you like are in this really almost like dysfunctional environment, right? Mm. Like think about like being on a bus for four days straight. The internet is bad. It doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound yeah, like, fun to me. <laughs> no, it's not. But like it is. Um, yeah. The internet is bad. It kind of smells after a while. <laughs> like you're cramped, you know, like all mm. of these like kind of anti best practices but they force you to be really scrappy and creative Mm. and to build these like really strong bonds with the other people that you were doing this alongside and you know for me that was incredibly transformational because it almost like unlocked this way of doing things that was like you figure out how to accomplish a lot Mm. with very, very little time, resources, space, energy, sleep, you know, whatever <laughs> else. And I just remember like getting to the end of that and being like, wow, like, you know, that was three days, but it feels mm. like we spent six months working on this thing. Mm. And ever since then, like, I have always kind of recognized that you can accomplish a lot with very little and that shared you know like difficulties and experiences and overcoming challenges are just like this incredible like bonding force and motivator for groups of people you know hackathons are sort of a microcosm of that yeah but all the time i see people have that light bulb moment where they're like i did not know i was personally capable of that you know now that i have realized i can accomplish those types of things I can do anything, mm. right? And I think that's a really, really powerful moment for people to have. And that was where I had that moment. But like, there's a lot of different environments that that create that. And and I think it's it just changed your entire worldview. Mm. And was that your inspiration to what became MLH? That's what I'm it hearing. It was certainly I'm, part I'm, of it. Mm. Yeah. It was not the direct lead-in. Mm. You know, there were a couple of years in between, but it definitely shaped how I think about communities mm. and, you know, technical learning because mm. that event had literally like next to no structure or or guidance or anything but you know you learned an incredible amount just mm. by by trying and often failing to do things mm. and it's that collective focus isn't it of something bigger than us if you like or something bigger than me yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. so if some of our listeners are sat here which i'm sure they are thinking ah. Oh. I, I want to do something like that. I want to get more involved or I would like to start getting that understanding through my community, whether that's an organization or a society or an educational institution. What would your recommendations be there? Yeah. So I think that if you are, you know, beginning your own like journey to to get into this field, I would really encourage people to engage with, with existing communities. Mm. Those could be in person. Those could be virtual find your local meetup group, find a local hackathon, go to a workshop that someone's live streaming on the internet, like whatever it is for you, just get a little bit outside of your comfort zone and take that first step. Mm-hmm. And I think what you'll find is that the the people that you meet there are incredibly supportive and excited to have you there and to help you down that journey. That can be the difference between like, feeling like you're you're lost and alone and and don't know where to go and 
and finding a ton of success and, and support. So I would encourage people just like, go to your first meetup, go to your first hackathon, go to your first workshop digitally or in person mm. and just try it. I think if you are, you know, further down that road and maybe you work for a company, you should also go, but for different reasons, you know, go to a hackathon to find your next intern, you know, go mentor <clears> someone <throat> who is from a boot camp. invest your time, energy, potentially money in supporting this next generation of folks outside of the normal, like, confines of of how mm. your organization might see the world. It's an incredibly <clears throat> fulfilling experience individually, but it's also just a way to change how things work. And, you know, it doesn't take much, right? Mm. Like it, it's not, it doesn't have to be a full organizational transformation, right? Like individuals mm. on teams can can have that impact. Mm. And I'm hearing an invitation to constantly step out of the box as well as the comfort zone and get yeah. curious, but also to build capacity for the future. So this future-focused way of thinking, which sounds a little bit scary because we don't know what the future is about, but that's the exciting part for me, I think. Yes. I mean, yeah, who, who knows? Like maybe AI will uh, you know, create their own communities, but I, I kind of doubt it. I think the human element will always be there. Yeah, I hope so. John, thank you so much for coming and sharing your inspiring stories and thoughts and experience. Where can people find out more about you personally, but also about MLH and what you do? Yeah, so... MLH is uh, online at mlh.io. You can also find us on social media, Major Mm -hmm. League Hacking or ML Hacks on Twitter. I'm John Mark Go. I think we could probably include some links to that in the show notes. But um, I I love talking to folks. Always happy to hear from from anyone who's excited about what we're doing and wants to get involved. Okay, so I will definitely put all that in the show notes so that people can get hold of you if they need to and if they want to get excited about hacking. Okay, thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks again for a great conversation. Thank you and and happy hacking. Yeah, (laughs) thanks. I might actually learn how to do it properly. (laughs) There you go. You can. (laughs) We hope you enjoyed this episode and the insights and learning it gave you. And it's bye from me for now and see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.